from the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome back, or welcome again to the podcast. Um, so this is our bonus episode. We promised we'd do an extra episode in October because we love this month so much. We love Halloween. Why not? And we're doing all scary movies for the month of October. And for the bonus episode, we've, we're going to go stray a little bit from format, just a tiny bit. Um, but we also decided we'd, we'd stick with a classic horror film, and so we chose uh, Wes Craven's original 1984 film, A Nightmare on Elm Street. So good. Still holds up. Still totally terrifying to yeah, me. Yeah, I saw, I saw this in the theater actually like a year ago. I went to Edwardsville, Illinois, and they were showing it. On like oh, in the tu- outdoor? No, like no, drive-in? it was inside. It was like okay. a Tuesday night. Um, but they were doing all scary movies every Tuesday. And, oh, uh, yeah, I remember. And it was pretty packed theater, and it's still, I mean, there was a lot of people, young people in there, and I, I think the movie still holds up. It's pretty effective to, to, to give the scares. Um, that's got to really say something too in a movie from what over 30 years ago can still pack a theater. I mean, granted, it's probably like one or three showings, but still yeah. pack a theater. Yeah, I mean, there were definitely parents there with their kids, like <laughs> introducing them to the next <laughs> generation. Um, but uh, so we're going to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street. Um, breaking a little bit from format, uh, we figured since this was a bonus episode, uh, we are each going to talk about one of our scariest nightmares we've had in our lives and then we're going to go into our picks of the week this time i did the people under the stairs and i did uh serpent and rainbow both uh west craven movies so we'll do our picks of the week um we'll do our nightmare segment and then we'll close out as always with our murray moment we got a lot of ground to cover this episode yeah so nightmare on elm street I think it's once you know there's so many Nightmare on the Streets have been made, and we'll talk about the franchise a yeah. little bit. But I just think it's uh it is it's to me it's up there. It, it is a standalone film. It's yeah. without anything else. It's a good story. It's inventive and still scary. It has like a great villain. I w- would always go back to the reason this movie even. I mean, a lot of people passed on this movie initially, but what makes it so terrifying is that. You know, it's a dream. Uh, Freddy attacks in dreams. So in theory, this is someone that is unkillable. And it's not unkillable like you shoot him a thousand times with a gun or an arrow or stab him and he still keeps coming back. It's like you really can't kill him because he kind of doesn't exist. Um, so if anything, it's it's something that's always going to be timeless because we all have dreams and nightmares. And um, it's not just the boogeyman in the dark. It's someone that attacks you at your most vulnerable when you're asleep yeah and i, I do like the idea that it's in certainly the other there's many many films that have come after this one that have yeah there's dream sequences that have been done into the dirt uh yeah but there is something effective and and interesting about a guy who's just not going around stabbing people he's actually can get into your dreams and get mm-hmm. into your psyche and and I think that that's what makes. I think in any of these like sort of slasher film, and don't get me wrong, I love. I, I can get down with 
all the 80s slasher stuff. Yeah. Um, but this one I do like because the kills can be creative. It, it, yeah. It's, it's, I think you said it perfect. It's like more imaginative. Yeah. And it's way to, to, like kill the body count. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like Nightmare on Elm Street kind of came after like the slasher genre had already started and it was beginning to kind of phase out and no one was really the enthusiasm um for people going to see slasher movies really just had kind of fizzled out. And so this was almost a reinvention of the genre and although I know that this fits into the slasher genre, I don't really my brain doesn't immediately go there with putting yeah. it in that category. Well, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll go into that a little bit more. We'll talk about that. We'll talk about, um, Wes Craven. We'll talk about Wes Craven. We'll talk about the franchise in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Um, we'll kind of talk a little bit, like you said, about the imaginativeness, this placement and horror. Um, where Freddie came from yeah, too. Maybe a little talk about Robert England. Yeah. Like some of the, yeah. some of the origins of how this movie came together mm-hmm. but yeah we'll uh get started before we oh i almost forgot before we get moving here what is nightmare on Elm street about Lindsay? all right you have a summary for us yeah uh so nightmare on elm street uh follows um group a core group of four kids four friends um who are all individually terrorized by this boogeyman in their dreams and early on they start to realize that um they're being terrorized by the same person. One by one, they uh, get knocked off. And we follow Nancy, the only remaining one of them, who is the one that uh, ends up battling Freddy, I would say, over everybody else. And one of the most brilliant tw- plot twists, I think, of, of a movie is a good three quarters of the way through. Um, we find out a little backstory that kind of turns this movie on its end and really uh, changes it from being a straightforward horror movie to something kind of deeper with a deeper plot. I didn't even say Freddy Krueger in any of that, did I? No. But um, we find out who Freddy Krueger is. Well, we'll go into a clip of of uh, Nancy talking about uh, Freddy Krueger to her mom. So we'll uh, we'll get your Fred Krueger in there for you. All right. Did you ask Daddy to have the hat examined? I threw that filthy thing away. I don't know where you really found it or or what you're trying to prove. What I learned in the dream clinic, that's what I'm trying to prove, Mother. Rod didn't kill Tina. And he didn't hang himself. It's this guy. He's after us in our dreams. That's just not reality, Nancy. It's real, Mama. Feel it. Give me that damn thing. It even has his name written in it. Fred Krueger, Mom. Fred Krueger. Do you know who that is, Mother? Because if you do, you better tell me, because he's after me now. Nancy, trust your mother for once, please. You'll feel better when you get some sleep. Feel better? So uh, we'll talk about, uh, we'll get into Wes Craven later, but um, Wes Craven's idea, the origin of this uh, spark for Nightmare on Elm Street, the idea for this film. Yeah. Um, you were telling me over the phone you yeah, had read I, about where. I was really fascinated by this. 
that um so the uh, the original idea for someone attacking you in your dreams um came from this uh the string of articles that Wes Craven had read um about um people that were having these nightmares where they were being attacked in their dreams and they didn't want to go to sleep and you know wh- what's more terrifying than not being able to sleep because you're afraid you're going to die we all have to sleep it's it's how are you supposed to get around that um, and one story in particular, um, and if I remember correctly, it was it was a, a group of people from Southeast Asia, I think is what Russ Craven said. I wasn't able to track down the articles. I'm sure they exist. Um, anyway, this this one guy that um, he was complaining complaining about about being attacked in his dreams and not wanting to go to sleep, and um, it had been going on for a while. And w- one particular night, um, he had been, I mean, not the one particular night, he had been prescribed sleeping pills and his family thought that he had been taking them this whole time. And this one night he was just exhausted and he finally crashed and finally fell asleep and his family put him to bed and everyone else went to bed. And then shortly later, they were awakened by him screaming, screaming, pawing, just like the blood curdling screaming and ran into his room and with that it was like he just instantly died after he passed away it was found that he had been you know palming all of these sleeping pills and he hadn't been taking any of them and he had this secret coffee pot stashed away like we see actually in nightmare on elm street um and that he had been that afraid that afraid to not go to sleep um that it had really gone to this length and it had had killed him um, I think that there's a condition behind this. I mean, however you try to um, rationalize it, there was something that was going on here. So the the dream aspect of it, that's where um, Wes came up with it. And then the idea of Freddy Krueger, I think, is really terrifying, actually. Um, so when Wes was a kid, he um, said that there was this moment um, in the middle of the night he um, happened to look out his window and saw this man passing and he said it was like the guy knew that he saw him and he just looked straight up at him and like they made eye contact for a second and Wes said it scared the crap out of him and he backed away and he waited and he waited and he looked again out the window and the guy was still looking up at him and so he was like freaked out as a as a little kid and um short like very short little while later um Wes said that he heard the front door like jiggle like the handle jiggle like this guy had walked around to the side of the house and had had tried to get in and I I I think there I've heard him tell this a, a few different ways where it seems like it ends there or he actually like did get in for a second and then was chased off either way he described the situation as like this guy knew that he freaked out this kid and he kind of got off on it and no matter what it was this guy was looking to terrify him and he was also wearing the hat that uh Wes makes Freddy Krueger wear so like this guy was totally modeled the Freddy Krueger was totally modeled after this guy I always like to hear the genesis of, of yeah like a uh, how a movie comes together and it's interesting they took partially from his own life and partially from yeah someone else's real life yeah both real life situations just like put together into this yeah it's a nightmare interesting too because they don't really this is 
a movie that uh, doesn't rely on based on true events kind of situation. No. Could have easily no. put that in front of the movie, but uh, I like that Wes Craven took like just the stem of these things and then put his spin on it. Expounded on it from yeah. there. To me, the, it, and that's the thing, it's like I don't like to, I, it's one thing when we do these discussions, it's like I don't like to compare and contrast, but since yeah. we're talking about, we're going to talk about this movie as a franchise, yeah. it's hard not to compare it to other horror franchises sure. that are as large like Halloween or Friday the 13th. Yeah. Um, but to me, as a first film, I think this movie plays so well. It does, as it slowly went on and on, it mm-hmm. became this sort of juggernaut and jump the shark or whatever but this first script is really smart it's very creative i I think that it could have gotten cheesy with like the dream stuff like Mm -hmm. and i think that they they really play on this reality of where we're at in the film versus like where we're at in dreams but to me the thing that makes the movie terrifying where i feel like i'm pulled into this universe of where these kids live on elm street Mm-hmm. is uh when nancy goes to the dream clinic or, yeah. or like is it a dream clinic it's like a yes where there's and, and and these things do exist i actually have a friend who totally works who are who worked at one of these clinics where they help people with like sleep apnea and sleep yeah. disorders and they like they actually like record them sleeping yeah and just fascinating but to me that was always the part that made me scared in this movie because we trust our parents to to help us and the parents are like we can't help you so we're going to take you to the specialist (laughs) and then the specialist is trying to figure something out but then she pulls the hat out of the dream and it's like okay yeah she's having a nightmare at the dream clinic and wakes up you know and then finally that that what i like about this this script and why i think it's so smart is it it that is the device that uses her pulling the hat out of her dream to to force the parent's hand to say like we created this monster because we, you know, and then mm-hmm. we get the backstory of Freddy. Um, the original script, we should say, just to clear the air here, the original script, Freddy Krueger was a child molester and child murderer, but when this movie came out or when this movie was being made, there was a whole string of articles um, across California that were about um, kids getting molested, and it was kind of like a media thing. And so when the movie was being made, they're like, you know what, we're actually going to, extract that out of this movie and just make him a straight up child killer and which I, I think a wise omission such a such a good idea to take that out because it it, it, it changes the whole tone if you add molesting kids into this it's, yeah. it's just not necessary when you're making a slasher movie I think when you're when you add that in there there's a whole other like guttural like like okay Slasher movies are, are are gross and violent anyway. Like we don't need to add right. that yeah. aspect in yeah. there. That's just like okay, I can't. I don't even know why I want to watch this movie about a pedophile. You right. know, um, but the um, so the plot twist is that he is uh, a child killer. The parents of the town are like they finally have enough and uh, or you know have had enough of this. <laughs> have had enough of him killing their children. I don't right. know. Um, <laughs> And they um, burn his house down, set him on fire. I think they burn his house down. Um, And that is why we have Freddy, who is this melted 
pizza face of a guy that is um, the monster that he is and haunts the dreams of these kids because in essence he's he's dead. Yeah. But he he haunts the dreams of all the kids of this town because when, of the parents. And I'm I'm really into the and I I probably mentioned this before on the podcast, but I'm always a fan of movies that are centered on teens, but there's a well balance between the adults and the teens. Yeah. It's not necessarily just strictly this teen's world yeah. and the adults are throwaway characters and vice versa. And I think that this is a movie where the adult characters are pretty strong, like John Saxon, who plays Nancy's dad, has got a, who has a pretty pivotal role in mm-hmm. this. And then like her mom, who's just clearly never gotten God, I <laughs> over love this. The mom. I, I, but I, but I think that they're so <laughs> intertwined and yeah. like you said, when we get this twist, plot twist here yeah. where, where we find out that they were heavily involved and they're yeah. the reason why they're the children are being punished because of the parents actions yeah um i i just like that and, I, and it and to me it it does help it break away from the mold mold of of these other slasher films where it's just like teens getting killed yeah um you know one after another it just make it makes it a deeper story and I think once you once you find out that you know the parents are being punished for murdering this this child killer, um, you your mind all of a sudden like starts to like backtrack and you think about you know Nancy's mom and her dad being like sharing these glances and you're like oh that's what that was, so I think it adds this whole um, element that you just aren't expecting especially in a slasher movie for it to go a little deeper and I mean. Wes Craven did that with Scream too. So like he's he's no stranger to making the the movies that he makes um are a little bit deeper than your just straightforward like pieces. Not that pieces is whatever, but you yeah. know like But you're not, not always just one a, step ahead of, of, of the Yeah the characters, you know. You there's a little mystery. Well, let's go to another clip uh, from Nightmare on Elm Street, and then we'll come back. We'll talk about Heather Langenkamp. We'll talk about Robert England, and we'll talk about Mr. Wes Craven. Glenn, don't fall asleep. tries to call. Langenkamp, who plays Nancy, which is the central character of the whole film, really brings everything together. Uh, I saw an interview that Wes Craven said he was looking for basically like the antithesis of what the lead 
female character had been yeah. at that time in horror movies. But it's essentially an anti-Scream queen, yeah. which is why I think you never hear Heather Langenkamp's name mentioned yeah. when you see the list of Scream queens. And not that I don't love the Scream queen list of people. I love Jamie Lee Curtis. Yeah, is and Jamie love, Lee Curtis, I mean, I guess I think she's, she's like the queen of... Yeah. She's like the queen except of for the her screen. mom, right? Janet Lee of Psycho. Um, but I do like the change of pace, um, the change of form mm-hmm. that the character of Nancy brings, and I do think that Heather Langenkamp brings that out not just in her acting, but also just in the way, just generally in the way she looked, looks more like a, a young next door neighbor. Yeah. Um, she looks more her age that she's supposed to be in the film. Not like yeah. a 23 year old playing like an 18 year old or 17 year old. Yeah. Um, I feel one thing that makes her work so well in this is that she's very, she is very real. And even though, yeah, she's in her early twenties. Um, I believe when she, when she did this role, I don't, I don't know whether it's her performance or how they make her look, but she definitely can pass for, um, a high school team. Yeah, totally. There's something about Nancy, and maybe it is because she's not she's not a scream queen, and she's not um, necessarily running from Freddy. If anything, I look at Nancy as someone that is trying to figure it out the whole time. She's 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 not. I mean, yes, she's afraid because she doesn't understand what's going on. But I I, I don't ever get the sense that Nancy is running away from it she's always wanting to face it um and and if anything i feel like like her character the what we see in um where does she come back in nightmare three and dream warriors and then in new nightmare but i mean i guess more in nightmare three she is she's always a strong character yeah and and in this we i mean she's always facing freddie and there's there's this weird I don't want to say sexual tension between she and Freddie, but there's this like really? very I don't want to say sexual tension, okay. but there well, you there's did, you did I did. Okay. I said it twice actually. But there's this um sense of like Freddie's met his match in a way because Nancy's never she's never backing down no matter what. And she is the last woman standing in all of this too. I'm a fan of the the way she takes this character's arc um, mm-hmm. and that essentially when she realizes what Freddy is, that's usually where a, where a movie kind of fumbles around a horror movie where they're like figuring something out. And yeah. Like, I got to put a stop to it. And there's certainly a little bit of that in Nightmare on Elm Street, I think, but I think she does an admirable job. Of, a little bit, but she's of, like confronting her yeah, mom about yeah. this and I like think, she's I confronting she does, everyone about. I think she does an admirable job yeah. of, of, of really propelling that. Yeah. She's like, character. who is Freddie? I'm not going to sleep. Yeah. I'm drinking coffee every night of my yeah. life. I'm not going to give in to this because I'm terrified. But like, no, I'm figuring this out. And uh, the line that always makes me laugh is, uh, <laughs> you know, because they kind of put a little makeup under her eyes to make her look like she hasn't slept in like two or three days. Sure. And she like looks in the mirror and she's like, oh, my God, I look 20 years old. <laughs> and I just every time that line, because she says it with such like conviction, you know, like I look disgust. 20 years old. <laughs> she says it with such disgust. <laughs> <laughs> as if it's so old um, there's a, there's a number of lines in this movie that make me laugh and i i there is a little bit of humor in nightmare on elm street and i i don't know if it's necessarily intended 
um maybe it's because of the datedness or or yeah. or the acting or or whatever but there's a few lines of Nancy's that like well while I never I never uh look at that character and and like think of the actress I like think of like Nancy like that's just right. her um what's it what's the line the <laughs> line after uh um her friend Tina the first person who's killed by Freddie um and 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 uh Nancy Heather Langenkamp's taken in to the station for questioning and her her mom is says so I can't remember exactly the thing but like are you sure you know what you're talking about and she's like how do you think I'm not taking your death seriously <laughs> <laughs> like that line so hysterical it's the way yeah she's hysterical she is upset and it's like yes you know what? In that situation, if my best friend had just been murdered, I probably would be like hysterical too. I think it's just the yeah. way that it's delivered that I think that there are these like little gems sure. in this movie that make it um that aren't necessarily intended humor, but um just make it <laughs> just just add a little twinge in there that yeah. make it a little bit more entertaining on a level that it wasn't intended but doesn't cheapen it by any means right i agree and uh we also want to talk about robert england a little bit here just a tiny yeah. bit uh Freddy the himself. man who brought freddie to life i think it is important to address the fact that th- this is a he brought the character to life yeah uh, and i think even in the documentary the never sleep again uh, Which is an awesome four-hour documentary. Yeah, yeah. If, if you're, you, if if you're going to watch, go through it. Yeah, a four-hour documentary on the entire franchise. It's, it's great, though. You'll, it's... you'll enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but they, but in the documentary, they state that in Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, oh my God, they didn't want to pay. They didn't want to pay uh, Robert England more money. It, well, you know, naturally, uh, a sequel starts up. You're expected to get more money. You know, yeah. it's just like a natural way yeah. of things the the first one was a hit no one got paid they did all this work now the sequels where all these people who didn't mm-hmm. get paid the first time around make money and they were just like oh we'll just hire some other clown to play freddy krueger he's and in a mask what immediately is it you realized know? that they, they were wrong and that they needed robert england and i think that uh he continuously you know built on the character of freddy yeah throughout the entire franchise and it was a huge franchise i mean we're talking seven eight movies yeah uh, television series uh music videos commercials (laughs) all kinds of wacky stuff yeah uh robert england really took this character from i i feel like the the first um the first freddy is terrifying and when we move on even like the second freddy's revenge he's still scary and we start to see a little bit more humor and then like kind of the rest of it until we get to new nightmare there's there's a lot of humor involved um that's not to say that he's not terrifying he's still very scary but i think with each with each movie whether like however you feel about each movie as it progresses um his progression of freddy is almost like like robert england is freddy and i i can't imagine someone else stepping in and it's like you said before like they had a they had a stunt guy because like why do they need an actor like right. whatever we just have a stunt guy step in here and do this and they were like holy crap this is terrible we can't have that 
And it and it is because I mean, from I, I, Robert England mentioned something like you know when he put on like the Freddy glove, like it was it was so heavy it made his shoulder drop, and so you notice all throughout the first one that like one shoulder hangs lower than the other one, which maybe that wouldn't happen in another actor. Right. And there are all these little things um, that made him so creepy and made it work in the first one so well and. If you're gonna change that, it's just not. Um, it's not gonna be the same thing. Yeah, and I think too, also, just is in a general sense, in the pop culture mainstream of the '80s, mm-hmm. it, it was the first time that we had like a horror genre superstar since like the '60s of like yeah. monster Vincent movies Price or Peter Cushing or yeah. you know it, it. I mean, I remember having like photos uh, posters up on my wall as a kid of like Robert England out of makeup but with the Freddy glove on like I mean I knew his face I nice. knew his name yeah um I think like at that point like he was really like a star that people knew his name I mean you associated uh, yeah. you you wouldn't have you wouldn't like the first one a standalone film scary movie but beyond that like I think like once the 80s were over like you wouldn't associate Nightmare on Elm Street without the word Robert England, even more so than Wes Craven's name, I believe. Yeah, I would say, yeah, I would definitely say that Robert England kind of like overshadowed uh, Wes Craven in that sense. And this movie was, um, or this franchise was really saturated as far as marketing. Like, uh, hell, I'm wearing a knockoff like Freddy shirt yeah. right, right now. Um, I have, a, you know, Freddy, uh, not decal, but like little figurine that hangs in my car. Like there was so much merchandising um, of of this entire franchise, and you're not gonna get something like that no matter. I mean, you can do that with with other movies, but you're not gonna get something that really pulls people in and holds them and keeps them searching for it on eBay. Yeah, if it's, you don't you don't have this this character Freddy that hooks you in. Yeah, and I think there is something that that Robert England does where we love to hate slash love a villain um you know and and to me like some of the the greatest battles fought between two characters it's like if there's with a good villain it's like die hard would not be the movie without hans gruber you know i think like a a movie like nightmare on elm street like you have freddy krueger I would say the really same thing comes for, to life, you know. for like uh, Jack Nicholson's Joker yeah. in, in the original Batman. It's, like it's someone... An actor takes the takes the villain beyond what you could even imagine. And you, you it almost, you, you, you come to love the villain yeah. because they have so much character and yeah. so much uh, charm and pizzazz. And I think that that's, throughout the Nightmare franchise, Robert England really played to that you still find freddy costumes in like halloween stores like yeah. now and it's 30 years later like the the mark that robert england made and that wes craven made with this character it's just um it, it's really something i would i would challenge even more than uh michael myers or jason Voorhees. yeah i think we're both and i think we both have said to ourselves not on the podcast <laughs> that amongst the horror franchises this is our favorite. Yeah. And I just think it's deeper. No matter if you think the sequel suck or whatever. And, and I'm and I'm a fan of multiple Yeah, me too. Horror franchises, but if if I'm going for the long ride and I was to 
why I would ever do this, but if I was to, if you had to sit me down and, and say, you, you pick one franchise and you've got to watch it the entire, all day long, hands down, I would always Easily. go for Nightmare on Elm Street. Easily. You know why? Because they're all different and they're all like, you're not, like I said before, you're not waiting for the kill. You're not waiting for like, what's the next like weird death sequence going to be? And yes, weird death sequences happen in these, but each movie, whether you think, whether you don't yeah. like the plot or not, they're all different. Right, and I feel like this was a franchise that could you could go beyond Elm Street yeah. and still have a captivating story mm-hmm. and still have interesting characters, whereas like other franchises, once you leave that universe, and I'll, I'll use Fr- Friday 13th for an example. You gotta say it once camp. you Once you leave the camp... Sleepaway camp, you just, same thing. You just, you, you know, you start. You're, you're that. That was like so built into. Yeah. A char- that was such a character that you take away. But Elm Street, even though it was this universe in the house and the nursery rhyme, you have all these things. Those were able to yeah. um, move into these other locations, these other universes outside of of the world of Elm Street, and still function as like an entertaining movie. You know, it's a kind of fun fact is that Elm Street is never uttered in the film at all. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. The the um the reason that that was included in the title was because there is an Elm Street basically in every city or town yeah. making it even more like this could happen to anybody. Here's a fun fact. What? Of just it's a personal fun <laughs> fact. I don't know how fun <laughs> it is actually uh but um when so this is like my third job. Okay. I had I I've got a summer job as a landscaper. Okay. And I knew nothing about landscaping, but Great. this guy's like you're 17. Sure. If you work 10 hours a day, we'll train you whatever. Yeah. You know, you can borrow our tools. Um but the guy who was training me lived on Elm Street and I'm not making this up. Yeah. His name was Robert Kruger. Come on. No way. Yeah, and, how, and did and he th- know that? Did he know how um, weird that was? I never brought it up because he was like a real serious guy. Yeah, why would you bring that but, up? But uh, you know, one day I'm working with all the people who are landscaping, and uh, I'm like, uh, so anybody here a fan of Nightmare on Elm Street? You know, <laughs> and they're like, yeah, it's okay. You know, I'm like, does it seem strange? Like, just, <laughs> I, I kind of have to just bring it up into discussion. Not to be uh, awkward or anything, guys, but... Uh, his name is Robert Kruger, and he lives <laughs> off of Elm Street. And they're just like, oh, my God, I never noticed that, you know? Um, anyway, it was the only thing I could think about. Like, the entire time uh, he was training me, like, we went to go pick up the tools at his house off of Elm Street, <sighs> you know? And I'm just like, weird. Like, I just want to ask him, like, have you seen the Freddy movies? How like, do you feel about that, bro? Your name was Robert Kruger, and you... Like, was it a choice to live off of Elm Street? Like, you bought this house, and you're like, will this be a weird thing, like, that'll be, like, a part of my life? But I don't... I, he probably never even saw an Elm Street movie. Maybe. Yeah. Anyway, that aside... I love that. It's really let's funny, talk about, <laughs> That aside, uh, let's quickly talk about this franchise. Yeah. Um, you know, it's had, it's had its share of hit and misses, Certain ones I love. I certainly. What are your favorites? My favorites are, of course, the original. Yeah. Um, We're talking the sequels here. I'm a big fan of Dream Warriors. Okay. Um, I have a huge 
nostalgic love for part four. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. And I still think part four works really well. I like yeah. it. it's it's to me it's one of the more fastest moving, entertaining okay. of the franchise. And then I was really I I saw part five, six, and seven in their theatrical release. Okay. And I'm still not a fan of five. I wasn't a fan of five when it came out. Dream Child, yeah. Dream Child. Yeah. Part six. Freddy's Dead. Freddy's Dead, not Which not, is supposed to be the end all. Right. Last right. Freddy. But New Nightmare, I'm, I'm pretty much part one, part three, and part seven. And coincidentally all the ones that Wes Craven had a hand in the script. Yeah. To me, those are the <laughs> ones figure. that are most imaginative and creative and and I think uh, we're more truer to yeah. the Freddy Krueger that we know. Part seven, I, New Nightmare is very closely behind um, uh, the original. And upon this, rewatching these may also made me look at the uh, the Scream franchise too. And New Nightmare almost seemed like where Scream 3 came from, where it was like making it into a movie and making yeah. it into reality. Um, but I think um, New Nightmare was was really brilliant in that way because it was it was one of the first to do that though was to was to take the where okay okay so New Nightmare is basically the um, the characters the actors that play these characters are playing themselves yeah and they're they're existing in the movie as themselves and then Freddie starts to interact with them as as the the actors um and i think that it was just a a great uh reinvention of the franchise and i mean i think it should have ended there if we didn't really need freddie versus jason but whatever Um, you know you gotta make money you know exactly and completely i think i might be wrong about this but i feel like freddie versus jason was the one that made the most money yeah i think it made like (laughs) more money than like every ridiculous nightmare movie put together uh, and i feel like but that's, when when people are waiting like 15 years for yeah. something it you can you i know. feel like that's the only one i yeah. actually thought in it or saw in its original theatrical yeah. release i will say um i don't want to i don't want to take this opportunity to miss this but uh Freddy's Revenge, the second Freddy, was always do was was always destined to make money because the first one did. No matter if it was good or bad, people sure. were going to go see that sequel. I love Freddy's Revenge, Freddy Two, but not because it's an amazing movie, but because it is the gayest Freddy, the gayest horror movie you will ever see, and and that is that's saying a lot. I mean, like, let's put this out there: the 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 first like real gay horror movie was a movie called hellbent which is great it's not amazing it's great but freddy freddy's revenge um was something that was the and this wasn't known at the time but like the lead actor and it was the only freddy that featured a lead hero as a male all of the rest of them had been female um and he the actor was gay um the oh man i'm gonna get this wrong not not the set designer Mm. somebody else that i think it might have been the set designer someone that was constructing the background was also gay the writer i i'm not sure if he was or not but he was aware that 
he was aware of what he was putting out into the world that there was this kind of like subversive maybe gay subtext he was putting out there and if you watch the movie even without knowing that especially in in the year that we're in now you there's no way you can watch it and go huh what's a i mean they're straight up in a gay club scene there's like a towel whipping ass scene there's 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 singing on a bed with a hairbrush there's there's so many things in this that make it amazingly gay and it's not said and so many people involved with the movie didn't realize it was happening um until well after it was completed and then everyone pretty much universally was like yeah it's pretty gay we just didn't realize it at the time. I haven't seen it in a while, and you have to rewatch it in that context. Jesus, I, I, it was. Um, I think I saw it very early on in life, so I didn't even think about that. And then it was brought up to me that you didn't know that there was a gay Freddy, and I'm like, really? What? Okay, I got to go back and rewatch that. And holy moly, yeah. So I would go on record saying that um, Freddy Two, Freddy's Revenge. Um, is maybe the first gay horror movie. All right. Yeah. So I love Freddy too. I love Dream Warriors and uh, New Nightmare. Those are my my favorite sequels. Um, real quick, let's just talk about Wes Craven, then we got to get to our picks of the week. Yes. Yeah. Um, Wes Craven, creator, mastermind behind this whole Freddy business, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, this whole and this business. was. Uh, he was already, this was like his fifth film, his yeah. fifth feature film. I mean, this wasn't, this was definitely his breakout movie, but he was already no stranger to the genre of horror movies and Last then continued the on to be, I mean, really he didn't stray from the genre, uh, which is, uh, other than one movie, Music of the Heart, which was like one of the last few movies that he did, I definitely think that he was... When you listen to interviews, he's just such the he's just such a sophisticated, interesting, uh, was a professor and kind of looks like a professor and kind of talks yeah. like a professor uh, in interviews, and you just wouldn't suspect that this would be the one of the top horror directors, you know, and just would always stay within the genre. Um, but I don't think that I think that he was, I think that he understood fans of the genre like I feel like yeah. he didn't do things ever as a cash grab I felt yeah. like he was always trying to push the limits and always trying to create something for horror movie fans that was genuinely scary and and, and not dumbed down yeah I think if anything I mean he hadn't really I, I remember an interview of, of him saying like you know horror really wasn't like his thing and he, the movies he remembers growing up on were like all the Disney movies, um, which I do. I, I know that. And they're all kind of horrific in their own way, too, but still enjoyable. But um, to have someone not come from from that background or like loving that and then being thrust into this and then their first movie being Last House on the Left um, which was like early seventies, yeah. Which is supremely, and this is also there was also a remake of this movie too. But it's like supremely violent. Um, it's a brutal watch. Yeah, it's an unpleasant watch. It is, and it's it's uh, there. There's nothing that I feel like Wes Craven really has ever done as far as violence goes that's um, unnecessary. 
So we're, I think in, you know, the year that we're in now, I feel like sometimes we go for the ultra violence and like, that's what we feel like is going to really pull people in. And I feel like in the early seventies in particular, even with like, I spit on your grave, um, we have movies that were violent, but they were violent for a purpose and it was to propel the story. And like last house on the left really sucks in a, in, in a lot of violence ways. I spit on your grave is a terrible watch, but it doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. It means that it's very unbearable, but it doesn't mean that it's a bad movie. Last house on the left is, um, great. And I can't believe that that was his first movie out of the gate. And then moving into like the Hills have eyes, which was also remade. How many Wes Craven movies can we remake? You know, a lot of them. Um, I don't think Swamp Thing was remade, but it was made into a TV series and a sequel. sequel. Um, He did Swamp Thing, and then we went into A Nightmare on Elm Street. And then I think probably even more than Nightmare on Elm Street, what he's most known for is the Scream franchise. Yeah, which Um, came very late in his career. Yeah. And, and, um, I mean, think what you will of Scream 2 and 3 whatever i'm always gonna like that franchise but scream 4 was um his i i'm really proud of the dude for that one yeah like going out on uh scream 4 yeah i I listened to an interview with uh when we were preparing for this i listened to an interview of Wes craven talking about the scream franchise and he said that it was interesting to him because he had done so many horror movies and he at that point in time he had sort of this is what I am. This is what I do. Yeah. You know I mean? He was yeah. comfortable with that fact and he, he wasn't, he was still making movies that he enjoyed. He wasn't like burnt out, but it was interesting. He said it was interesting cause he had just made new nightmare and then the script to scream came along and that mm-hmm. was a movie they did after new nightmare. Yeah. And he said, and he said this in a very humble way and I do believe him to be a humble yeah. uh, director. Totally. I mean, he, he has the, the filmography and the he's like the most understated you know, man. But, but he said yeah. that, and and he he said the reason why Scream came out so well is I just dealt with this territory, yeah. but you have a script that dealt with the kids who love these movies, not the boring behind the scenes making of the movie, which is something he didn't think of. So he said I was at the top of my game. I had just come off of this material, so he was just like he put a director at the top of his game working with material that he knows so well with an excellent script and great actors, you're going to get this great movie. And certainly those are all the ingredients to make a great film, but it's still, I think like, yeah, scream. I I thought was like one of the last horror movies that I saw in the theater and walked out just damn excited. (laughs) Just like, Oh my, you know what I mean? And, And I had, and I had uh, I get burnt out on horror movies every now mm-hmm. and then. I kind of it's ebbs and flows. But I remember Scream being. I remember seeing Scream totally. And I also remember uh, having not seen Scream for a while. Mm-hmm. And I think this was a couple of years ago. I think you came over to watch yeah. us. We did. It was when Wes Craven passed away. I did like a little tribute night in my backyard, uh-huh. and I showed Scream. And my neighbors have kids, and we I live in a <laughs> town at home, and. Our backyards are real. It's a very tiny backyard with a fence, and we share. We're, we're right on, kind of right on top of each other. And most of the movies I had shown in my backyard were not family friendly by any means, but I took 
into consideration that there were neighbors neighbors and kids and uh yeah it was like i hadn't seen scream and i was like 10 or 15 minutes in the scream i was like man i forgot how like hardcore this movie is i mean you forget because it is funny and fun and silly like it's pretty brutal and Wes Craven yeah. knows how to bring that it, it, I mean he 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 does not shy away from a brutal scene he's always had the delicate balance of like making a incredibly interesting story and also mixing in a tiny bit of humor but also like never relenting on like just yeah. how dark we can go and like I said before, with the violence, like he's never he's never unnecessarily violent. It's always yeah. something that like it it makes sense Warrants in the it. in the reality of the story that we're telling. Well, let's um. So both of our picks of the week this week are yeah. both Wes Craven films, mid career Wes Craven films. Um, I picked uh, Serpent and Rainbow, which came out in 1988, and you picked. The People Under the Stairs. People Under the Stairs. Yeah. And People Under the Stairs was written also, right, by Wes Craven? It was written, yeah, by Wes Craven, yeah. Um, I also did uh, watch The Serpent and the Rainbow finally. Yeah. Um, Man, I can't believe it's taken me this long to watch that. It was, was so good. I was kind of surprised you had never seen it. Yeah. I, a, a, friend, a, a friend of mine gave me a copy recently, and I just hadn't gotten the chance to watch it. And I finally did, and dang, man, that is a good movie. Yeah, I probably hadn't seen it in ten years, and then when I was, go- I was like, "What movie am I gonna pick?" Yeah, I remember. Well, I'll talk about it in a minute. The the, the honestly, the the title of the movie is not necessarily gripping. Yes, yeah. Um, but man, it it is worth a viewing. Yeah. Well, do you want me to just go right in the Serpent and Rainbow? I would love for you to talk right. about that. Serpent and Rainbow uh, again. Um, directed by Wes Craven. Uh, he did not write it. It was based off of a book and adapted. And uh, it is basically like a, for its time, like a modern day realistic zombie movie. Um, the movie centers on Bill Pullman, who plays a doctor who's hired by a pharmaceutical company to go to Haiti because the pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company says that there was a man who was declared dead and then eight years later uh they had pictures of him that he was still living and kind of hanging out in this town and they believe that the haitians created some sort of uh anesthesia drug that causes the body to seem like it's dead but then the body wakes up, revitalizes itself. So they see it as a way to make money to have a new form of anesthesia because at the time there was a 50% chance or it was some like really crazy ratio of a chance that you could die on the table Um, So by giving anesthesia. So Bill Pullman goes and he immediately gets entangled in the, the culture and it's like culture shock of Haitian culture and voodoo culture and the movie does I don't know a lot about voodoo culture so I mean I'm gonna say fr- I feel like it's not exploitive and it's it's it feels like it's being sensitive and not uh, mocking or exploiting a religion um, because the movie most of the movie takes place in what what is supposed to be Haiti in the 80s um, because of that, the movie doesn't feel dated because you kind of get the sense that 
that village that they're at probably still looks like that. So Bill Pullman's character slowly starts to find out what's going on, like how they're performing this ritual where someone dies and then is brought back to life. Um, but it turns out there's this secret police uh, led by a very villainous police captain who basically is telling Bill Pullman, you need to leave. Uh, Haiti warns him. Bill Pullman doesn't listen. And then uh, they take a nail and they, they hammer it into his scrotum. And uh, you'd, you would think that that would be enough to uh, get him to get, get on the first plane out of Haiti, but, but it does not. He's at this point, you know, he's determined to figure out uh, what this is. And then eventually he goes through the process. They give him the powder and he awakens in the coffin, but is saved by the man that they thought was that, that they, that the pharmaceutical company had talked about in the beginning. And the movie is, is scary. It plays, I think that this is Wes Craven's most mature film. It does have a lot of imagery that you've seen in his other movies, especially with like hands grabbing a body. And because there's several sequences where it is a drug that they give them, you're getting the sense that this is what they're, is it a hallucination? Is it, is it real? But there is a real sense of dread in the movie. But again, like I say, I, I don't want to say that I know that is not being exploitive of this religion, of this culture. But seemingly when I watch the movie, it comes off being genuine and is, is trying to be a very mature horror film. Watching the movie, it made me wish that Wes Craven had the shot to do more films that, that had a more non-horror content. Um, that dealt with characters because this movie is a lot about the characters and the reactions their reactions with each other and he does that really well and he ramps up the tension really well he's very good at like keeping things tense and keeping us engaged in a central character and Bill Pullman I don't know you know I mean Bill Pullman is just sort of voice Bill Pullman he's like the Matt Damon of the 80s but I think he does an admirable job. You know, I mean, I think the movie could have like been better at if they would have had someone more doctorly, um, you know, maybe an older character, but you know what it was, he, he did, a, he did an all right job. And I think that the, it's definitely worth seeing. Um, I also th- would put it on that list of movies where if you're not necessarily a horror movie fan, I think that this is one that you could get down with. Now it's not super gory but it does have a lot of nice atmosphere and uh, really, uh, yeah, a lot of great atmosphere actually. But yeah, I highly recommend it. Yeah, I, w- I wouldn't say it's like, um, like a, I think it's like 70, 1979's like zombie. I don't think it's like that straight up like zombie movie. It's very much more so of like a straightforward movie that happens to involve that. Um, yeah, I don't think you're going to be put off by yeah. it being like a straight up horror movie or yeah. anything. And even the word zombie comes up in the beginning yeah. of the movie. They're like, if you're uncomfortable and, with yeah, the word zombie, yeah, and, and, um, yeah, you can use whatever you want. Yeah, they're like, whatever you want to call it. It's a drug. <laughs> they they do this. They do this little it's magical. like a thing that happens, magic but whatever. Yeah. Um, so 
not too shortly after this movie, Wes Craven wrote and directed the movie that you picked, which was People Under the Stairs. Can you uh, tell me a little bit about this film? So, yeah, um, this 1991 horror movie um, was always a uh, junior high slumber party favorite for me. And why is that? Um, well, it's totally out there. It's wacky. It's a little more disturbing than horrifying and even kind of funny. The comedy, like the comedy is somewhat similar to what exists in the, um, uh, other Craven, Wes Craven favorite scream. Um, but there is a substantial amount of, uh, child abuse in the movie, which is not funny at all. Um, but it is important in order to understand the plot. Um, in The People Under the Stairs, we follow this kid nicknamed Fool who's been roped into robbing his landlord's home because they are looking to evict fools just trying to get by family. Um, now this landlord's house is a maze-like castle of a home inhabited by Alice, a kidnapped, abused, frustrated teen girl played by A.J. Langer. Some of you uh, may know her as Rayanne Graff from My So-Called Life, that TV show, which I also loved. Um, the the house also um, houses a whole horde of imprisoned, pretty feral basement dwellers, all previously kidnapped, um, who didn't follow the see, speak, hear no evil rules of the house, as well as uh, another kidnapped kid named Roach, who got away or got out of the basement and now lives in the walls, being the only companion to the abused Alice. Um, and Roach actually ends up being super helpful in the plot and ends up helping uh, our our main hero fool out big time. But uh, what takes us into the completely over-the-top realm are the villainous landlords, a twisted brother-sister duo who are murder murderously out of their minds. Um, they're gun-happy and maybe into some BDSM together. That's not really clear. Um, but um, Everett McGill and uh, Wendy Roby, who are fresh off their roles, roles as Big Ed and uh, Nadine Hurley from Twin Peaks, um, are the couple who pull off these characters with all too great of ease, almost as if like you couldn't even imagine anyone else playing these sickos. The People Under the Stairs works as a solid creep fest, and is relatively fast-paced, actually. Um, McGill and Roby are so wackadoo, which only adds to the comedy, as well as, like, Fool, who is a rock-solid lead for his age. Um, and he's, like, death-defying, like, he's defying situations that, like, shouldn't happen for a kid who's, like, 12. Surprisingly enough, this movie keeps me on edge, and Craven is kind of, like, a master at building tension. Now where the Texas Chainsaw Massacre made us creeped out that scary, kidnapping, cannibalistic folks only live out in the boonies, the people under the stairs brought it closer to home and saying that these people could live right next door to you or in your neighborhood. This movie also partners well with a not-so-secret favorite of mine, Brian Usna's uh, Society from 1989. Uh, Justin, I know I showed this movie to you. Both movies came out of, of the same conservative, like, late 80s, early 90s political era and are total metaphors for the wealthy uh, profiting from sucking all they can from the poor. While society ends on a much bleaker note than the people under the stairs, the latter comes to a conclusion with Fool and Alice taking, taking down these murderous, kidnapping, 
child-abusing landlords and the neighborhood profits from their demise. It's a really satisfying ending for sure. There's blood, some gore, but the grossness is tolerable. Like I said earlier, Craven really um, isn't ever in the mood for needless violence or gore. There's also a very substantial uh, supporting role by a younger Ving Rhames before he was super well known, and I've always really liked that dude. Um, and I also feel it necessary to say um, that there's one dog death. I'm sensitive to this matter with animals. One dog death. You know, I I missed a lot of the meaning when I was watching this movie as a youngster and, and even thought some of the humor was kind of a by- byproduct. But really, uh, Wes Craven is and always will be such a master and everything that he really does in all of his movies is so intentional. I never saw the social commentary aspect of this movie um, because I've really never seen it in its entirety since high school. But now, upon rewatching it, it makes me really like this movie a lot more. The humor of this movie also makes the disturbing sequences with McGill and Roby easier to stomach how absolutely nuts they are. While you are totally rooting for Fool and Alice to defeat these landlords, um, and you also really want the people under the stairs to exact their revenge. Um, now, Justin, I know you've seen this movie. Do you have uh, any thoughts on the people under the stairs? I do. Uh, I haven't seen it. I haven't seen this movie in probably like f- I would say a good five years. It's. I, I think it's a. There's political commentary, which I always. I, I, like yeah. if you can work it into an entertaining horror film. Yeah. Why not do that? Then do the after-school special. Yeah. And I, and I feel like it's the obviousness or like something that's like beating you over the face with it that like gets an Oscar nod Yeah. where, where it's like actually like this more subversive, like getting into kind of like your psyche and making you think about things like is actually the more constructive way Yeah. Um. in order to also like put out your art and also, you know, put out a message too. Yeah. And I think too, this was a now like, not that there was like gentrification in uh, people on their stairs, but I think that there was that that inkling of yeah, you know, you're in a a, a lower minority driven neighborhood and yeah. like the it's the like white section eight housing that, yeah, is like and, what they're talking about. Yeah, and I think that and there was a couple of like Candyman was another yeah, movie Candyman exactly sort of fit into that social commentary genre, and yeah, I I I think it's a very smart and inventive way to you can have social commentary but also place it within mm-hmm. this entertaining genre horror genre action-packed maybe kids won't get it but uh, you know someone older will pull that from the movie and i think that's great so again serpent and rainbow and the people under the stairs uh our picks of the week um both again mid-career Wes craven movies and I think uh, each movie showed a lot of growth for yeah. Wes Craven. Yeah. I, I think uh, as a writer and as a director. So now we're going to our non. This is this is we're going off format here. Off book here, off guys. Off book here. Um, <laughs> and uh, since this is our bonus in quotes, big quotes episode, uh, and we're doing Nightmare on Elm Street, we thought it'd be fun to share with you. We each have a nightmare that I wanted to 
each share a nightmare that we had that stuck with us that we can still remember to this day. Yeah. That's a strong nightmare. Yeah, totally. You know, if you have it when you're younger and you remember it like 10, 15 years later. Um, so uh, do you want to kick this one off, Lindsay? What What is... Yeah, yeah, this sure. Is, this is a nightmare. Can First, can you tell me uh, at what age you had this nightmare? Yeah. And then tell me... Yeah. What... what I, I, I feel like the, the nightmares that I remember were around the age of like 12, 13, 14. Um, this one definitely falls into that, that realm. Um, we're only telling one, but I did have one, one time where I was like involved in the West Craven scream house, but you know, that's another, maybe that's for another podcast. This one's way more terrifying to me. Um, please share. <laughs> So I always slept with my bedroom door open. My bed, oh, like first off, when, when, when the, yeah. you said this was 12, 13, 12, 13, okay, 14. Okay. So it was like, um, when was I born? Uh, 82. So like, I don't know, like 94, 95, okay. 96, somewhere around there. All right. Um, I, I like I said, I, I, I always slept with my bedroom door open and my bed uh, faced the doorway because I was afraid of the dark and I didn't like total silence. This is still true today. Um, I woke up because I heard super heavy breathing and I remember having the conscious, like very awake thought, okay, my dad's having trouble breathing because of his asthma. And this was something that regularly happened. So I rolled over in bed to get up to check on my dad. No big deal. Something that happened all the time. Um, as soon as I could see the door, uh, I was halfway turned over in my bed. There was like what appeared to be this four foot tall being shaped like a small Christmas tree. Um, I can't think of a better shape to describe it as, but think of like what the silhouette of a small fir tree would be, but with more defined descending spiky offshoots coming off from the sides. The light um, from the hallway uh, was lit up from like lit it up from behind so I could see the silhouette, but I couldn't see like marked definitions in like the 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 um, face of whatever this was. And to boot, the only thing that I could see, it was that it had glowing red eyes. So there was no question that whatever I was looking at was not some like type of living creature in my doorway. As soon as I saw it, of course, I was paralyzed. I felt like it It must have seen me move. Like, had it seen my eyes seeing it? So I, like, ever so slowly rolled back over to my side so slowly. Maybe it wouldn't have seen me move because it was so dark in the room. I don't know. Um, but I didn't want to keep looking at it. I just wanted it to go away. And at this point, I wasn't looking at it anymore. I But I could still hear the breathing. Now I was just thinking, was it that things breathing that I was hearing or did it do something to my dad? I had no idea, but my eyes were wide open under, under the sheets of my bed. And I had this overwhelming feeling, feeling that if I looked up from the covers, the face of that creature was going to be right there, inches away from my face, smiling or snarling. I don't know, just staring at me. Now I had this like incredible panic that set in and I just kept thinking it was hovering over me, looking at me and my paranoia had been completely um, incapacitating at this point. And this went on for maybe like five minutes, but it felt like a complete eternity. Um, finally, I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't believe it was real, even though I was terrified that it was. The heavy breathing had been intensified during this whole time that I was hiding, hiding under my covers. And I don't know, it was just, 
too intense that I couldn't take it anymore. So I slowly started to roll back the way I had initially when I had seen the creature and I pulled down the sheets from my eyes so slowly and my heart was pounding. Was this thing going to see my face right then and there? And just like that, the creature disappeared and the breathing stopped. Like right then, the breathing stopped. I didn't see it anymore. I jumped out of my bed and I ran out of my room and flipped on the bedroom light. Nothing. Nothing in the hallway either. I checked my parents' room that was just adjacent from mine. Their breathing was normal. Everything was fine. I stood around in the hallway for a few minutes just thinking, I was awake, right? I did see something. I know I did for sure. Like I was awake this whole time, right? And to this day, like, I don't know if I was dreaming or awake or in some state in between. And I've done some research like recently actually and learned that other people have seen similar things like these shadowy shadowy figures um, are generally called appropriately shadow people. Um, most encounters happen when people are awake or half awake. Um, some have reported even the glowing red eyes, but I haven't found anyone who's seen the same Christmas tree like fir tree um, type figure though. Um, from what I've read, most shadow people that are seen are human shaped. As for my feeling of being awaked and terrified, this totally sounds like sleep paralysis. But no matter how much I try to, you know, scully this nightmare into a rational scientific explanation, there's still a part of me that's like, I don't know if that was real or not, which is really still terrifying to me, like over 20 years later. So it's, it's hard to know, you know, what that, what it means, what it all means. But, um, like to me, like right now, if you were to ask me, I don't know, that actually happened because it does not feel like a dream. Like I know what a dream is. Yeah. That did not feel like a dream. So this is kind of creepy. I I won't, I'm being 100% serious to you listeners. (laughs) You did not tell me what this dream was. No. This is the first time. Yeah. No, we don't know what our dreams are. Uh, we didn't discuss. We just said we were gonna do dreams. Uh, oh my god! What, what are you gonna tell me right now? Is so creepily similar to really my dream. Uh, huh. I'm not. Pu- I'm not. I'm not. This isn't. Oh a my god! On. I'm gonna this get put on. freaked so, out right now. So it's interesting that you ex- that you say shadowy figures. So yeah, when I this is this is when I was probably eight years old. I guess I was in like third grade. Okay. Um, single. My mom was single parent. Yeah. Uh, we lived in the city and not a great neighborhood. So I just always stayed inside when she worked. And so she was always stressed. It was like kind of a stressful time, I guess. So, you know, I mean, when, when stress is yeah. around, you have weird dreams. But uh, I had my own room and it was an old city apartment in St. Louis. Um, and... Before the stream happened, there were already things that happened in the place, like things would go missing. My mom was always frustrated. Like it seemed like what you would consider to be like, oh, like in St. Louis is known for having a lot of hauntings. Yeah, you know, it's known for for like a haunted city. Well, anyway, I have this dream. And again, how you described, it's like to this day, I'm like, was I awake? Was I sleeping? It seems so real. I can't distinguish, but my mom had found like some like at like a a goodwill or something like an old school desk that you would seen in the fifties, the real heavy ones that were metal and had the 
had like a flat top that you could lift off to yeah, put of pencils course. and stuff in. So that was in the center of my room. And that's where I would do my homework and stuff. Well, uh, I have this dream that I wake up and the light's kind of coming in kind of bright through the window of my bedroom, like a bright street light. And my closet door opens and this like shadowy figure comes out. Are you sitting in the desk? Or I'm laying in, in my bed. Okay. But the shadowy figure comes out and sets something down on the desk. And I can't quite make out what it is. But at this point, I'm I'm scared. So I'm like pushed all the way up against my wall. I'm like pulling my covers. I'm just like watching this figure. And then I start realizing that this light is coming from this item that's been placed on my desk and what it is, is is it's a film projector and above me on my wall a little tiny screen starts projecting and it's me as a child and all the things that I had done from the time I can remember from four years old to eight years old anything that I had done that was like would be even like remotely despicable or like little secrets I'd try to hide like cheating on a test or like lying to my mom about something or like you know stepping on some neighbor's flower was like projecting over my bed onto this wall and at the very end of this film there was just me standing like standing like near this tree and the shadowy figure was in the film and came up behind me and started to grab me and at that same time I felt like something on my neck like in like what I consider to be my real life and I pushed myself and I was pushing myself so hard against my wall that like it felt like my back I was hurting my back and then I woke up and I and I was just terrified I was like sweating and my desk was there my door closet door was closed but I was so scared like if I was an adult now I'd get up and like check the whole house but I was so petrified that I just laid there and I laid there till the sun came up and for like it like stayed with me for days like weeks I mean I still think about it now wow very creepy there's like so many things to unpack in that yeah like one the like humiliation thing of like these things that you've done as a child like being exposed to you and then like in in, in some way like being punished for it or being called out for it yeah and i did grow up in a very like um very my grandfather was like very religious you know Mm -hmm. very you know very like god-fearing man so like i kind of grew up around that environment um so maybe that was part of it um because i was going to a christian school at the time they told me i was going to hell for listening to huey lewis which was my favorite artist at the time and so (laughs) You know, I was like, I came home, I was like, Mom, like, you know, I'm going to go to hell. And she's like, why? I was like, because they said Huey Lewis sings the devil's music. Because he had a song called I Want a New Drug. <laughs> I Want a New Drug. I'm going to laugh and I also so loved, much more later also about lo- and, you going to hell for listening yeah, to Huey Lewis. Yeah, but and Michael cool. Jackson's Thriller was like my favorite record. And my grandfather was just like, Michael Jackson <laughs> sings the devil's music. <laughs> like those were his words. Like he sings the devil's music. So I was already. (laughs) 
basically I was already on I was already on the highway to hell at that point <laughs> but the stream maybe it was like you know it was Wow. It was showing I mean me. that that would make so much sense like these tiny things that like I mean we know is like if you were to look at uh, objective like not you know influenced by religion or society or like whatever we look at these things and and go you liking Huey Lewis or Michael Jackson really yeah. does not mean that you're going to a hell dimension of any yeah. kind um like but growing up around that of course like anything yeah. you stepping on a flower or you you know pushing a kid or like whatever yeah. whatever it may be is going to make you have this extreme guilt and so of course it's going to manifest but what is this shadowy figure man and it's creepy that what is that several people have had this like shadowy figure dude shadow people are a thing i yeah. found out it creeped yeah. me out to read about it i don't like to read about it so. yeah it bothered yeah. me to read about yeah. it and i was like somewhat kind of happy like no one had seen like the exact or at yeah. least i haven't found that but i mean the if i if i have to be honest i'm fine us just not talking about shadow people because I, never talk I about still it have to ever uh, again. I still have to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> I got to work in the morning. <laughs> um, so enough about our nightmares, unless it happens in your Murray moment. But I don't know. I don't know what you're gonna do. No, I I I, I couldn't find a nightmare Murray moment. Okay. <laughs> what? Either way, here's your Murray moment. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. Right, so not a nightmare, um, but in 1980, Billy did uh, do this little-known film um, that I love. I don't consider a nightmare of his career at all, but this little-known film called Where the Buffalo Roam, wherein he played uh, real-life gonzo journalist Hunter S. Thompson. Um, the film is still largely unknown, but still touted as a fairly accurate representation of Thompson, due in large part to um, Billy spending a lot of time with him during the making of the film. And Thompson, who served as executive consultant on the film, felt like the Billy should come as close to becoming him as possible for the role. I mean, why not? If you're playing him, why not be as close to him as possible, right? Well... This involved many weeks of late nights, drugs, not sleeping, general shenanigans that the uh, common person dare not even try. Not known um, to be a method actor, um, that being one who becomes the character, Billy dove headfirst into, into this role. And legend has it, the two, um, that being Billy and Thompson, had a, a string of one-upping each other, like with wacky, unsafe antics. One well-remembered incident was Thompson actually tying Billy up to a chair and throwing him into a pool. And as the story goes, Billy would have drowned if it hadn't been for Thompson, who reluctantly dragged him out of the pool. 
And if you've seen where the buffalo roam or know much about Thompson's life, this story is completely believable. So years later, Billy would telephone um, Nightmare on Elm Street baby all grown up Johnny Depp when he was making Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, another film about Thompson, and he gave Depp a warning for the future. Billy told him that his next role should be something as far away from Thompson as possible, that Thompson really gets, gets inside of you, that you could become obsessed, kind of like Billy did, and if you weren't careful, you'd be playing him again years later. And a little over 13 years later, Depp would assume the Thompson role again in the movie The Rum Diary. Maria said that when he entered the fifth season of Saturday Night Live, he was still in the character of Thompson, that he just couldn't quit him. He said about that time in his life, I took on another persona and I still have Thompson in me, kind of like wanting to get out. That says a lot, I would think. I mean, you know, you're hanging out with Hunter S. Thompson and he affects you that much. It says a lot. And maybe there's a lot of Thompson left in all of those that came across him during the time that he was alive. After his abrupt suicide in February 2005, Depp reportedly spent $3 million to make Thompson's last wish, how he had chosen to be put to rest, actually come to fruition. That being Thompson's ashes being shot from a cannon placed atop a 153-foot tower in the shape of a double-thumbed fist clutching a peyote button. Um, This was a design that Thompson had dreamt up many years before. Of the almost 300 folks in attendance to a send-off, you better believe that our Billy was there too. These were wild times. And I don't think you or I, Justin, could ever fully understand how deep Billy or Johnny Depp went into uh, understanding the role of Thompson or befriending him. But man, I'd take the worst hangover in the world or near-death experience to have found out. Yeah, so I watched um, uh, Where the Buffalo Buffalo Room recently, and I got us, and not too long ago that I watched Fear and Loathing, and I think that, I think Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas is the better film but I find Bill Murray's portrayal of Hunter S. Thompson more enjoyable. Yeah, I I, I would agree with you. But maybe just because I've Johnny Depp is just he's continuously done that sort of zany, yeah, character in that same sort of style and voice. I think there's a lot more. It's more actiony or something like that in Fear and Loathing, but Bill Murray. To me, not. I don't even think it's just because I I like the man. His portrayal yeah. is better. Well, I think too in Fear and Loathing, the narration uh, really lends to the movie's uh, yes. coherency. Whereas, like, for the Buffalo Rome, you're not getting anything but Bill Murray talking to himself yeah. for any sort of narr- narrative yeah. drive. Yeah. <laughs> um. <laughs> well, we ran pretty long this time, but uh, hope you've enjoyed everything. Um, Nightmare on Elm Street, our own personal nightmares. Uh, the pick of the week and our Murray moments. Um, so we're continuing on. We've got one more scary movie for the month of October, and this is one of our favorites. Uh, it is Tom Holland's 1985 Fright Night. Man, I never get sick of Fright Night. I don't. So much fun. I don't. So Halloween Eve, you can tune in. Um, we'll be doing Fright Night, and that'll be our last scary movie. And then we're moving into some pretty serious well semi-serious waters what are we doing in november what we got coming up after a fright night kids 
Is kids coming? I think up? kids is what we're Man, doing. Man, I can't wait for that one yeah. to for that one to I've happen. I've mentioned to a few people that we're doing kids, and <laughs> I got sort of this sort of like quiet side eye. Oh, really? Yeah. I remember that movie. I Why tried you guys to forget that ruin movie. Your podcast with <laughs> kids. Things were going great. Um, I'm sure it'll be a provocative podcast. Oh, yeah. episode. So we've got that coming up. Uh, major, thank you. Yeah. Major tonal shift. Yeah. Yeah. Tonal shift. <laughs> Normally I hate it, but um, well, thanks so much again for listening. Um, you can always find us on social media: Facebook, Don't Push Pause Podcast, on Instagram at Don't Push Pause Podcast. Uh, you can check us out on our website, don'tpushpausepodcast.com, or you can always email us directly at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Um, we always uh, look well, forward to hearing from people. Um, feel free to rate us, uh, if you like, on iTunes. Uh, that always helps us out, helps spread the word and show our relevance. So Yeah, we always, share us with your friends, yeah. talk about it, talk to us about it. We, we love hearing from you, and we love getting the word out about the podcast. And, and, I, and I didn't mention this earlier, but uh, Serial Mom was our, our uh, one of our biggest downloaded episodes that we've done so far. It's so cool. thank you, all you John Waters fans that came out of the woodwork to download <laughs> that episode. Yeah. Like, we saw our numbers jump, and we're like, whoa. Serial That's Mom, crazy. Who It was knew? like double the downloads that we normally get for... The first week of an episode so yeah. thank you so much for that it's really cool well until next time i'm justin johnson and i'm lindsey reber thank you thank you